0: Hi everyone. My name is Kristen. I am a long-term care planner, a certified Medicaid planner, and a certified dementia practitioner with Steinbacher, Goodall, and your Check. Today, myself and attorney Landon Hodges are going to talk to everyone about legal documents all individuals with special needs and their families should have. Landon, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Thank you, Kristen. Hello, everyone. My name is Landon Hodges. I'm an attorney with Steinbacher, Goodall, and Yurchick. Specializing in elder law and estate planning and um, consistent with today's topic is special needs planning as well. And I think one thing that you'll see throughout today's discussion is that there is a lot of overlap in these subjects that um, we want to make sure that you're aware of as you plan for the second half of life and for um, planning for a loved one with special needs down the road.
0: Thanks, Landon. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this. Uh, a lot of times our seminars focus on the second half of life and what happens if you need skilled nursing home care in home care. A lot of times Overlooked is the disability planning, so benefits such as Social Security, um, Supplemental Social Security Income, Social Security Disability Income, and the Medicare, Medicaid that go along with that. So today we're going to briefly talk through some of those options, just so you know that while we specialize in the elder law, we also focus on special needs planning, and we're here to help you. So We're going to jump right in. I'm going to start off talking about the different types of benefits and then Landon's going to jump in. He's going to talk about really essential legal documents that everybody needs to have in place, talk about the types of trust that are necessary for special needs planning and when we need to put those into place, and then also talk about the ABLE Act, which we always get a lot of questions about. <laughs> So So the first benefits I want to talk about really are dealing with social security benefits. So there's a couple different type of benefits through social security, and it's so easy to get them confused, but they are so different. So social security, most of the time, individuals receive a social security benefit once they hit retirement age, and that's a monthly benefit that you receive for the rest of your life. But what Landon and I are going to focus on today is the social security disability income and the supplemental security income. So they're very different, but really planning is necessary for both of those types of program. So I'm going to start with the social security disability income insurance because that does seem to be a little bit easier to explain. SSD Social Security Disability Insurance is a program that pays a monthly income to individuals who have worked enough to earn their work credits and then they can no longer work due to a type of disability. So once you've been determined as disabled, at that point in time, you can apply for Social Security Disability. So what happens is you then qualify for a monthly income to be paid to you since you no longer can work. So the maximum payment right now is up to $2,788 per month. So not everybody's going to qualify for that amount, but that's the maximum amount that you could receive under the SSDI program. Another benefit of the SSDI program is that it will trigger Medicare to be paid to to you after a 24-month waiting period. So once you hit a certain age, 65, you're going to qualify for Medicare. But this is really important for somebody who may be disabled and needs that Medicare coverage prior to age 65. So I'm going to switch gears here now and talk about SSI, which is the Supplemental Security Income. Now, before I jump into that, I want to say that it's really important to know what type of benefit you are receiving. A lot of times when somebody calls into our office, they think they're on one type of benefit, but then we find out they're on a different type of benefit. The planning and your options are a lot different based on what type of Social Security benefit you are receiving. So anyone who's receiving the SSI program, that is a benefit that's also going to pay out monthly, but it's going to be a lot lower than with the disability. So for the SSI program, it's essentially a welfare program and an applicant can receive up to $783 per month Again, you may not qualify for $783 per month, but that's the maximum benefit. Now, the more important issue here and why most people actually qualify for the SSI program is so they can receive Medicaid. And we're gonna talk about Medicaid in a few minutes and why that's so important. So with the SSI benefit, If you qualify for that and receive up to $783 a month, then that is going to go towards things such as food and shelter. So there's specific things that you can and cannot use (laughs) to when you qualify for the SSI program. Um, And that's something that we could talk everybody through because it's really specific on your situation and the guidelines are very strict as I know Landon's gonna talk about here in a little bit. So for I, I do wanna switch gears then and talk a little bit about Medicaid because that keeps coming up. So Medicaid is a huge benefit with, for anyone who is disabled or receiving any type of public benefits. There are so many different forms of Medicaid. We deal with Medicaid for individuals who are receiving long-term care in a nursing home, Medicaid for individuals who are receiving in-home care, in, um individuals who are under the age of 21 that may need special services. There's you know, autism programs, there's all sorts of different types of Medicaid options. But today when we're looking at the special needs planning piece of this, a lot of time Medicaid's fitting in more for a health insurance program. So Medicaid's going to help pay for any type of healthcare needs that someone may need. So that's a huge benefit, especially when we're considering the individuals that we are gonna be working with during the special needs planning process because most likely there's some sort of underlying health condition. And if we don't have health insurance, that's a huge burden on that individual and their family. So our goal is always going to make sure that we're qualifying for the appropriate program, making sure that Medicaid is going to help pay with that. So Medicaid will pay for all health care expenses, doctor's visits, prescriptions, hospitalizations, things like that. So it's a great benefit. I wanna just touch very briefly on Medicare. A lot of times Medicare is kinda like, Medicare and Medicaid are like SSI and SSDI. They're very often confused with each other because they're all named so similar. So Medicare, that is an insurance that somebody who reaches age 65 receives individuals receiving SSDI, as we discussed earlier, and then other individuals under the age of 65 with certain disabilities. So that is a federal health insurance program also. Most of us are familiar with that in some respect. Biggest thing right now, I just wanna make sure that we know that Medicare and Medicaid are two very different programs and come into play at two very different times. One other Medicaid program I wanna touch on today is called the MOD program. It's the Medical Assistance for Workers with Disabilities program. This is a really, really great program. Um, It's probably one of my favorite Medicaid programs because what it does, it's encouraging individuals who may have a disability to work if they're able, a limited amount of hours, but still qualify for Medicaid, for medical assistance to help pay for healthcare costs. So most of the time, if you're working, you're not gonna qualify for the medical assistance health insurance. So this program, along with some stipulations, encourages individuals to actually work because it's great for our quality of life, to get out of our house, to um, you know, do something good for ourselves, self-fulfilling, but also be able to not worry at the end of the day that even though we're working, that we aren't going to be able to afford our health insurance coverage. So that is a wonderful program. There's income and asset thresholds, how many hours you can work, but that's something if you're curious about, have some questions, certainly reach out to us at any point in time, we can help you walk through that program. So I'm going to switch gears. Now I'm going to let Landon jump in, talk to us. Um, I think we're going to start off Landon with those essential estate planning documents.
1: Absolutely. But um, before we do, Kristen, I think one question that pops up a lot when I'm advising with clients is a situation in which a person might qualify for both SSDI and SSI. Um, Do you have any particular or or typical advice that you give people who might be eligible for both?
0: That's a tricky question because we don't see a lot of individuals who actually qualify for both. Um, But if, if they would qualify for both, we'd really have to sit down and look at the whole situation and figure out which benefit makes the more sense. It really depends on if the income, (laughs) if they need the income a little bit more and maybe they have another health insurance plan or a spouse has a health insurance plan. So in that situation, we'd probably say the SSD would be a little bit of a better program. But if we're talking about a situation where health insurance is the main goal and the the bigger um, need then the SSI, in my opinion, would be a better um, option at that time? That's a great question.
1: Thank you, Kristen. And, and I think what's important to take from that is that um, if you try to go into these types of programs by yourself, it yes. can get a little bit overwhelming. But we're here and um, you just know that you're certainly not forced to do this by yourself. And um, Kristen can, can save a lot of time and hassle in, in cutting through uh, all of the obstacles that might be put before you if you try to go at it by yourself. So thank you so much, Kristen.
0: Yeah, no problem. And I think that I I'm glad that you brought that up, actually. Um, because you're right, we, we at our office don't do any type of cookie cutter planning. Every plan is tailored to your needs. Um, very rarely do we actually run into a situation that, you know, I've been doing this for eight and a half years that um, I say, oh, I know a situation I did just like that. It's almost like starting from scratch every single time that um, And I think that's that's a great point. That was a great question. And, you know, just to throw out there as well, our office does offer free initial consultations because we know this is really tedious. We know there's a lot of questions. We know it's almost impossible to navigate (laughs) what's right and what's wrong and what you should be doing. So that's why we offer those free initial consultations. So come in, you know, right now we're doing phone and Zoom consultations to talk to us and we can um, help figure out what the best plan is and what your options are.
1: Absolutely, and th- thank you so much for that overview, Kristen. Um, so what I want to touch base on today is considerations from an estate planning and legal point of view that you might want to keep in mind if, if you have a loved one or are taking care of someone with special needs. So my discussion today is going to center around three special considerations t- to keep in mind um, as, as you're setting up your, your estate plan or the estate plan for a person with special needs. First is estate planning documents. Second is decision-makers, and third is what happens if a person with special needs receives a lump sum of money, such as an inheritance or a, a payout from an insurance policy. So first, I'm going to start with possibly the most important of them is the estate planning documents, and this applies to both maybe you as the caregiver or parent of a person with special needs and to the to the extent that they are able, the person with special needs themselves. Um, And when I say estate planning documents, the most basic ones I'm talking about are powers of attorney. Powers of attorney are documents that I, I tell clients in my office all the time, if you don't have them when you come in, there's no chance that you'll leave my office without me recommending strongly that you have them in place. At the most general level, a power of attorney is your ability to appoint someone referred to as an agent who would be able to make financial or medical decisions on your behalf in the event that you were not able to. And the way our office splits these up is in four different documents. There's a financial power of attorney, which of course deals with finances. And think of this as assets in the most general, in the most general way you can think of it. So your financial power of attorney would be a person that you could trust to be able to handle your finances in the event that you are not able to um, take control of those things. From a special needs planning consideration, a financial power of attorney is very important because as long as a person is able to understand and execute a legal document, having a financial power of attorney in place allows a person to have a point of contact appointed who could talk to banks, or the Social Security Administration, or any any other entity or person to deal with your finances. And the importance of going ahead and and planning for this ahead of time is that as long as a person is able to sign legal documents, a, a good financial power of attorney is instrumental in ensuring that that you never have to go through a court appointed guardianship in order to have a decision maker for a person with special needs. And I will be discussing this difference a little bit more in detail when I get to the decision makers, but I certainly do not want to short um, on the powers of attorney. So financial power of attorney, some people like to think that, well, it's not necessary unless you have a a great deal of assets to manage, but no, anyone that has any assets whatsoever or any source of income could benefit from having a power of attorney just in, in the event that they would need help managing those those assets. Then on the healthcare side of things, our office splits those decision-making powers into a healthcare power of attorney, which of course deals with general healthcare decision-making. If you or a loved one is unable to make and communicate a informed medical decision, then who would be the point of contact for the medical provider? The healthcare power of attorney allows you to go ahead and put that in writing ahead of time so that there's no questions of who can, your medical providers can contact in the event there's an accident or a medical decision needs to be made and, and um, you're not able to. The second of those is a living will. Um, you might see these put together or referred to as a advanced health care directive. Those terms are synonymous so either way know that those are very similar terms and they're referring to essentially the same document. Um, but the living will deals with specifically end of life decision making. Um, it's always a document that you don't want to have to use but of course it's great to have um, in place because if you were ever to find yourself in an end of life scenario or a, such as an irreversible coma or a vegetative state, this document allows you to express what your wishes would be concerning treatment in that condition. This is important for anyone to to risk um, digressing from the topic at hand today, which is special needs planning. Know that these apply to everyone regardless of of capabilities. But then the final one I I wanted to touch on today as well is the mental health power of attorney. This one is more rare. You don't see it as much, but it is very treatment-specific, and it ensures that agents have a say in things such as um, treatment for mental health diagnoses or for placement into a inpatient um, psychiatric hospital or something like that. This document is an instrumental in ensuring that an agent is involved in all of these decisions when, if, when and if they are ever needed to be made. So those four together encompass the powers of attorney that I recommend everyone have, um, whether it's yourself or a loved one that you're caring for, because those four documents work together to ensure that if you are not able to make a decision on your own behalf, there is no gray area in which your agent's told that they don't have the power to do something that would be in your best interest. So that's the, and then of course, along with that, there, and I will speak about this in more detail um, when I get to lump sums of money and more in-depth estate planning things, but of course, a last will and testament is important for anyone to have. To ensure that your assets get distributed upon your death the way you would like for them to, because of course, if you don 't write a last will and testament, the state has written one for you. so if you want to have a say in the matter, then it, it is important that you would you would express those wishes in in a last will and testament. so I mentioned earlier that one of the important reasons to consider a a financial power of attorney, especially but it 's also true on the healthcare side, is that In the absence of a a power of attorney, if a person loses the capacity to make and communicate decisions for themselves, the only other option at that point in order to have a decision-maker in place is a court-appointed guardianship. So that's why it's important as to the the second main point I wanted to talk about, is if you're dealing with a loved one with with special needs – You need to ask yourself who is that point of contact and who are the decision makers for this person if they ever need help Um, because if if that's not thought about beforehand guardianship is a court process in which the court declares a person incapacitated and appoints a guardian to act on their behalf Um, all of this can be accomplished with a good power of attorney But once a person gets declared incapacitated, they lose a great deal of legal rights and are under the um, monitoring of the courts. And of course, as with any court process, it's a lot more timely and costly to complete than it would be to to simply consult with an attorney and sign up a power of attorney. But since the purpose of this call is proactive planning, I don't want to go too deep into the process of guardianships, just know that one of the important reasons to have a power of attorney in place is to prevent the need of a guardianship in the future. Because if you think you're gonna save a little bit of money now by not doing powers of attorney, you may be in for a very unpleasant surprise if that person ever has um, an emergency and needs a decision maker appointed and they're not able to do it um, themselves. All right, so I'm gonna skip ahead to the third topic I wanted to talk about, which is what happens if a person with special needs receives a lump sum of money? Um, easiest example of this is, say you have a, a minor or a young adult with special needs whose grandparents, um, as well-intentioned as it may have been, left an inheritance to them in their will when they passed away. As Kristen discussed, there are some benefits, namely SSI and Medicaid, that have asset limits. And and using Medicaid as an example, that's typically an $8,000 limit. Um, Now, of course, that varies depending on income, but with that $8,000 limit, if somebody were to leave this person, say, $20,000 in their will, that's a great gesture, and that's, that's a good amount of cash, but at the same time, especially for a minor or a young adult, that's not enough money to sustain you for a lifetime, but it is certainly enough money to get you kicked off of your benefits. So what would you do? and that's where trusts come involved. The the type of trust that's specific for this area of law is referred to by our office as a Supplemental Needs Trust, but you might also see it called a Special Needs Trust. Um, Those terms are synonymous. It's just a matter of um, semantics between the two, but a Supplemental or a Special Needs Trust. The function of a trust like this is to ensure that assets can be set aside and held by the trustee of the trust and managed for the benefit of the beneficiary, which in this case would be the person with special needs. Now, within special needs trusts, there are three different types. They all achieve the same function in that assets in that trust are not countable towards your asset limits for for benefits, but they do have different provisions and how they work. So the first, and, and what I would recommend as the best, is a general um, special needs trust or what might be referred to as a third-party special needs trust. This is one that would be important for that grandparent in my last example that's going to, that wants to leave $20,000 to a grandchild with special needs. A third-party special needs trust is established by someone else for the benefit of the person with special needs and it's funded with other somebody else's money. So Using that example, grandmother wants to leave $20,000 to a grandson with special needs. She could establish a third-party special needs trust for the grandchild and instead divert the gift that she would normally give to the grandson to that trust such that once her estate is administered, that money is there and it serves the purpose of supplementing the grandson's needs while at the same time not making it available or countable towards their asset limits for their benefits. So now, why is this one the best? And the reason, and I'll get into this in more detail with the other two, is that the third party special needs trust, the person who sets it up, so staying with the same example, the, the grandmother in this scenario, gets to choose who the beneficiaries are if the primary beneficiary passes away But now what's what's important to note about the third party trust is that it can only be funded using assets that do not belong to the person with special needs. So that's kind of a side note, and, and if you are a parent or a caregiver for a person with special needs, that would be important for you to consider as part of your estate plan for anything that you would like to leave for that person. Now back to the topic at hand of if a person with special needs were to receive a lump sum of money. So say the grandmother did not set up a um, special needs trust, and now this person has $20,000 cash that needs to be reported to the government who's providing them benefits. So what can they do in that situation? Well, there is another type of special needs trust referred to as a self-settled or a first party special needs trust. Now this one, is one that the, the person with special needs would be the person setting up the trust and funding it with their money. Once the, once the trust is funded, it has the exact same effect of allowing those assets to not be counted towards any asset limits and also being set aside specifically for the needs of the person with special needs. But the downside to it is that in order for it to work, the primary beneficiary Upon the death of the primary, of the person with special needs, must be the Department of Human Services for any state that provided medical assistance to that person. So you might hear this referred to as a payback trust because upon the death of a person receiving Medicaid benefits, it's very likely that that person's estate will have a lien against it so that the Department of Human Services can be repaid for any benefits that they paid on his or her behalf. So while this trust would be very instrumental in ensuring that while the person with special needs is alive, that this money can be set aside for their benefit and not disrupt the, any public benefits they're receiving, It does require that upon their death, any portion of that trust that could satisfy a lien against their estate must be paid back to the state. And so that's one issue that you have with receiving a lump sum inheritance or any sort of lump sum payment is because once it touches a person's hands, it becomes a countable asset. And in order to protect it from that point, the only options become some sort of payback scenario. So this can be prevented with proactive planning using a third party trust through a caregiver or parent's estate plan. Now one that I don't use as much, but just know that there is a third option of special needs trust called a pooled trust. And it's pooled in that it's operated and managed by a nonprofit organization who manages money for all people in the pool um, as one invested lump, but of course keeps separate accounting for each beneficiary but it would be a nonprofit organization who's managing the trust funds that are in there and, of course, the distribution. The benefit of doing a pooled trust versus a first-party special needs trust would be that it certainly costs less upfront, and then with ongoing expenses by having a nonprofit set it up. But there is a, a, a separation in that you can't have a family member, for example, be the trustee. But there are also payback provisions on that as well. So unfortunately, you're not getting any sort of um, avoidance of the payback because once it touches a person's hands, there, there is no way to avoid a payback eventually. But a pooled trust for smaller amounts of money, so in my $20,000 example, a pooled trust might be a good option because the cost of setting everything up and getting it established would be much lower. Now, there is another option that might work for smaller amounts of money, which is called the Pennsylvania ABLE Account. Before I move on to ABLE accounts, Kristen, do you have anything that you would like to add about trust or any questions that pop up for you that that you think would be worth addressing?
0: No, Landon, you did such a thorough, thorough job there. I I don't think you left very much untouched.
1: Well, the thoroughness can be a blessing and a burden. I certainly hope I've kept my audience at this point, Uh, but I can't see your your faces, so we'll we'll assume that you're still listening.
0: No, I think the biggest thing, and you stressed this, was don't wait until it's too late, essentially. You know, a lot of times people wait until, you know, after they receive the lump sum or after their benefits are already in jeopardy. And then, you know, there's there's only so much we can do so quickly. And we do everything in our power. We know how to navigate all this. But if you wait too long, it just hurts you at the end. So the sooner you guys are, you know, everybody's aware of what the options are and, and what they need to do, the better job we can do to help.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Proactive planning makes everything easier down the road.
0: (laughs) Sure does.
1: (laughs) So the last thing I wanted to touch base on, and this is still on the topic of what happens if you receive a lump sum of money, because this is relatively new. I believe it was 2018, if I'm not mistaken, but it's been within the last few years, Pennsylvania passed a law um, known as the ABLE Act and that's A-B-L-E, and what that is, is it's an account established by the state, and the the website to do that, while I'm thinking about it, is www.paable.gov. It's maintained by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and it allows you to set up an account, referred to as an ABLE account, that would, similarly to a trust, assets in there would not be countable towards any of your asset limits for benefits. Now, the downside to that is that once an ABLE account is established for a person, you can only contribute a maximum of $15,000 per year into that account. Now, these are tax-deferred contributions similar to a 529 college savings plan, if you're familiar with that. But each beneficiary is only able to have one ABLE account for themselves, and it's a maximum of $15,000 contributed into it from any source. So for example, each of a child's grandparents could not each put $15,000 into the account in one year, but a total of $15,000. Now one benefit of an ABLE account is that there's not much administration or cost in setting it up. And also distributions from an ABLE account can be used for things that might be limited from a trust, such as food and housing. And now with ABLE accounts, if you have specific questions, please feel free to contact our office. But just know that these are not exclusive topics. A beneficiary can have a trust and an ABLE account, and there might be some reasons to set up both. But with ABLE accounts being relatively new in this state, it's a good resource to be aware of as you start thinking about planning for what's ahead, whether you are a person with special needs or caring for a person with special needs. This is a good resource that's out there. And we'd be glad to um, discuss any options that you have as far as making these plans. And I'll certainly give Kristen an opportunity to to, uh, add anything else that she has. But I wanted to wrap up by just saying that at the law firm steinbacher Goodall in your check, we have offices in State College and Williamsport. We serve clients all around the region. And we do offer, as Kristen mentioned earlier, free initial consultations. So if you have questions but don't know exactly which direction you're wanting to take it yet, give us a call. We'd be glad to have that conversation and see what we'd be able to do for you. We are open during the COVID-19 pandemic right now, exercising all reasonable precautions to ensure that the safety of our clients. So these initial consultations are most likely going to be done via Zoom or on the telephone, but our teams are working and we're working to ensure that things move forward in a reasonable manner and that you receive the quality of service that our clients are typically accustomed to.
0: Landon, I think that's fantastic. Um, I think that's a great way to end this session. And we look forward to hearing from anybody who could use our services and we're happy and here to help everybody out.